You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Deep space, man. It freaks me out. I think it's supposed to. Our earthly mortality is in such stark contrast to the vast, unfathomable distances of the cosmos. Really, just thinking about how much of reality we'll never see, can never know, is absolutely hidden to us, is enough to set my hairs on edge, enough to give me that feeling of being watched, enough to straighten my spine and get ready to run. We're so small in comparison. In the intro to episode three, I talked about Carl Sagan's pale blue dot speech, and I'm not going to rehash that here, except to get you to take a moment and think, really think, about what lies beyond not only our atmosphere, but our solar system, our galaxy, what could possibly reside outside our universe, what secrets are out there, in the void. Our brains aren't wired to comprehend those sizes, those distances. We literally cannot contemplate what lies beyond our realm. We're simply unable. Light itself travels 186,000 miles per second, and it still takes light from the sun 8 minutes and 20 seconds to reach us here on Earth. Can you ever really know how far 4.22 light years is? That's the distance to Alpha Centauri C, the closest star to our solar system. 4.22 years for light, traveling at 186,000 miles per second to reach us here on Earth from the closest star. That's unbelievable. Incomprehensible, but true. So I ask again, what secrets are out there, hiding in the void? This month on Death, Dying, and Other Things, one story revisiting that theme in Dreams of Dead Energy, a man struggles with his work, the effect of leisure, and his insignificance in the face of a life searching for meaning. Death and Dying The thresholds between this world and the next The boundary between light and dark the barrier between worlds. And that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. My dreams, both day and night, turn to that far-flung graveyard where the will of so many go to die, where the collective efforts of thousands of individuals better than me go to bolster the armies of the unheard one, the collector, the eternal gravekeeper, the one who goes by a thousand other names in history and in times yet to come, 
those mad geniuses, still for millennia, calculated in their fruitlessness, sending their energy away to die. And there are others, others who take pleasure in a still moment between tasks, others who enjoy leisure time, inadvertent assets to that clever force buried deep in the cosmos. These are far more numerous than those willing servants of the unheard one, but a far greater boon. But me, me, me and my hubris, me and my foolishness, me and my hopeless desire to harness the effort of my body into something beyond mere survival. And what have I gotten for my work? Achievement, glory, renown. A better man than me might admit his folly and offer up his effort to the dead one, nestled in that distant corner of the universe, biding its time, but I am a coward. A coward who sweats at the thought of my endeavors drifting off to die and join the others. A coward who despairs at the thought of that vitality stripped away, lost to the cosmos. A coward who is terrified to let his mind idle lest it return to those dreams of dead energy. Oh, I am exhausted, truly, but will not stop to rest. I am afraid to pause my life's work on this infernal machine, this appalling contraption. What does it even do anymore? I cannot be sure. There are gears and levers and ropes and pulleys I added days, weeks, ages ago, and I don't remember their use. I wish I could stop. Wish I could pause to turn the thing on even to see if it works, but as soon as I would, those visions would return of those empty ghosts shimmering through the cosmos toward the gargantuan void. They mock me enough during the brief sleep I allow myself each night, just long enough to ensure my waking brain stays focused through the rest of the day. They will not mock me in my waking time. A knock. A knock at my door. A welcome distraction. When I open it, an old friend stands before me. He is a true believer, one of the cult of the calm, those that allow themselves rest and unwittingly aid the hidden terror that haunts my dreams. Surely he is here to check if I'm still alive, and when I open the door to let him in, he seems relieved. I pour us both coffee, and he accepts his, though places it on the table straight away and watches me gulp mine down. He looks around the living room. Here, the machine has encroached from my workshop, just like it has in every other room in my small house. Pipes and beams snake through the doorway and around the corner, disappearing down the hallway. Seems to be coming along nicely, my friend remarks. I nod in agreement while slurping the rest of my coffee from my cup. It has been my fifth cup already, and it is barely noon. I hardly feel the effects of caffeine anymore. And you? You're well? Well as ever, I assure him. That's good to hear, he says. The reason I came... He trails off when he notices my eyes fixed on the ceiling. I've followed wisps of his squandered essence up through the plaster where the ceiling has given way to the eternal cosmos. I can see it, those silvery strands of sinew ripped away from my friend, off to be consumed by the lost god. It's happening right in front of him, 
and he is oblivious. I pity him. The reason I came today, he repeats when he has regained my attention, was to ask you again to accompany me on a trip up north next weekend. I think there is no denying that you need it. A moment away from the city. A moment away from your work. A moment for your mind to rest. I recoil, both mentally and physically, at the suggestion my mind might benefit from a rest. My friend must see my discomfort because he softens his tone. When have I ever let you down? He asks. I only ask that you trust me once again. I first heard their secrets whispered in a back alley 15 years ago. Has it been 15 years already? Two gentlemen, talking of their leisure time, one was leaving on holiday, and another had just purchased a book he was thrilled to read, and then one of them uttered a name I won't repeat, and the other repeated it back, and they bid each other farewell, and I've been unable to rest ever since. I am thinking of that fateful day in the back seat of my friend's car. He is talking to his wife about the pleasant weather we're to experience on holiday. I realize how precariously close I have just come to dreaming of that horrible reality that surrounds me unseen, and so I bring out a pad of paper and pen from my jacket pocket and do several difficult math problems to keep my mind busy. I am halfway through my third equation when I realize my friend is calling my name. Harry, he says, with a sharpness meant to get my attention. Sorry, what were you saying? I was asking if you agree with Nina that bad weather is preferable to no weather. Nina, what do you mean by that, I ask, my mind peaked and ready to begin a thought exercise. I only mean it in a purely hypothetical sense, that bad weather, say a cold thunderstorm, is preferable, at least to me, to a day with no weather at all. No wind, no humidity, mild temperature. Isn't that just weather of a different sort, I ask? For the purpose of this thought exercise, no. And what do you think, Mark? I ask my friend. I think that a day with no wind, no humidity, and a mild temperature seems like the perfect day, Mark says. And my point, Nina says, is that a day like that is a featureless nothing. It may as well be a flat white wall. Put some artwork up. At least the rain gives you something to struggle against. So how about you, Harry, Mark says, looking me in the eyes through the rearview mirror. I agree with Nina. Mark groans. No, no. Hear me out, I say. My reasons are different than hers. Let's hear them, then, Nina says. The rain, the cold, thunder, lightning, hail, sleet, snow. All of them give you something to think about, to ponder. When's the last time you pondered a mild, still day? The first day of spring, Mark shouts in disbelief. Nina and I remain silent, steadfast in our opposition to Mark's milk toast attitude toward weather. You two are meant for each other, Mark says. Oh, don't be like that, Nina says. She reaches over and touches his arm. I return to my math problems. They turn in early that night. 
between unpacking and preparing dinner and eating and the conversation that accompanies those tasks, my mind has been thoroughly distracted, but when they lay down for bed, I'm left to my own devices, alone in a strange place and scared to sleep. I spend some time walking the grounds of the cabin we've traveled to. Pleasant, if small. But the remoteness allows for more of the stars to be visible than usual on a night in the city. And whenever I glance up at them, my stomach turns over in my abdomen. I think of my machine, idle in my small home. And then I let my mind wander. This I regret almost instantly and I have to wrench my thoughts away from the cosmos back down to Earth. I stare at the ground while escaping the stars' trillion watchful eyes. Not that my mind is any less weary inside. I begin to feel anger rising inside me, anger at Mark for bringing me out here, away from my work, to isolation, where the only thing I can do is relax. Relax and be tormented by all the macabre knowledge I possess, all the macabre knowledge he refuses to hear. I lay down on the cot they reserved for me. Perhaps he's right. Perhaps after all these years, I just need some rest. I sleep clear through the night. Longer than I've slept in too many years to count. But restful is the last word I would use to describe it. For hours I drift through space, through thick black nothing. I watch the earth past my feet shrink to a pinhole and then disappear completely, and then the sun itself gets lost amongst the thousands of other stars. And yet I drift on, powerless to stop my ascent, or descent, depending on your perspective. I leave our galaxy, and then that, too, gets lost in the surrounding abyss. I don't know where I am any longer. No human being on the planet Earth could tell me either. Soon there's nothing even to look at. Stars and galaxies blink out of existence all around me. And then, just before I wake, I turn my eyes upward and come face to face with the source of all my anxieties. I wake up screaming. I cannot remember what I saw. I cannot remember. I just know it was worse than I imagined. And now, I wonder if my mind has forgotten this abhorrent knowledge on purpose to protect what small shred of certainty I yet possess. Mark and Nina are up already, sitting at the nearby kitchen table, and are enjoying cups of coffee and halves of grapefruit until I disturb them with my shouting. Sorry, I say, once I've composed myself. Bad dreams. Several hours into the first day of our trip, and it is perhaps harder than anything I have ever done. Mark sits on the porch of the cabin, reading a book on philosophy. Nina goes off on her own, into the woods on a hike. I stare up at the clear blue sky, drenched with sweat despite the cool breeze. Mark more than once looks up at me, looks at the front of my linen shirt, wet around the collar and under my armpits, and asks me if I'm feeling all right. Asks if, perhaps, I've fallen ill. I, of course, tell him no, that everything's fine. But while staring at the blue sky, I'm also trembling from the memories of the previous night's dreams, imagining the secrets hidden by the bright heavens, and lamenting my energy there squandered 
traveling upward to its cruel fate. My muscles twitch and burn, itching to get to work. I feel every lost calorie in my soul. I tear my eyes from the blue expanse above me and look at Mark, wondering if his game is simply to torture me, wondering if he is some agent, some cultist of that long-forgotten demon feasting on our indolence. Why do you so badly hate hard work? I ask him bluntly. He looks up from his book, but keeps his expression steady, though I imagine my assertion hurts him, as I meant it to. In what way? He narrows his eyes. Here we are, up in the woods, away from our work, away from a place where we might harness our efforts and divert them away from. I stop short. If he is here to stop me from working, if his goal is to vanquish my opposition to the dead one, as I now suspect, I do not wish to show my hand too early. I continue my thought after refocusing myself. I have a million things to do, and my hunch is that you do as well. Am I correct? I'm a professor, he says. Yes, there's always more work to do. And yet you sit here a hundred miles away from it and read. How do you rationalize that? Well, here, away from it, my mind might rest, and in doing so get stronger. I snort out of my nose. And when I return to my work at the end of the short sojourn, I will be invigorated and do better work. And what of all this energy you're squandering at this very moment, I ask. We're not machines, Harry, he says. We're not batteries with a limited supply of juice. Perhaps, I say. Not perhaps, definitely, positively. We are positively not like batteries, Mark says. The point still stands, I think. We may not be like batteries, but would you agree it is better to harness all the energy we might to keep it from, to prevent it? I search for a phrase that might ask the question I want to ask while not exposing my knowledge of Mark's game. Wouldn't you agree it is better to use your own energy for your own endeavors rather than let your energy be squandered and drift off into the aether? Mark looks so very puzzled by this question, and then asks one of his own. What exactly does your machine do? He smirks a little while my blood pressure rises. Just before I can respond, Nina crunches out of the woods, drawing our attention. If you're a new listener, I wanted to say thank you for giving this show a shot. And if you've been a listener for a while, I wanted to say thank you for all your support. The crawling begins that night originating just behind my right eye and radiating across the top of my head and to the base of my skull. It feels like a feather running down the inside of my head, and when it reaches my neck, a sharp pain, like a needle pressing into the muscle holding my head up. My neck goes limp for a second and my head falls to the side before I can rally my neck muscles to catch it. Nina notices. 
We all three are seated at the fireplace, enjoying the crackling wood and recalling old stories. Tired? she asks. Me too. Relax, Mark says. Turn in early. Sleep's good for you. Nina smirks. I know I'm not tired, though. I excuse myself and walk outside to the porch. The night is crisp and clear. The stars and moon shine down bright, and I try to keep my gaze averted long enough to gulp some fresh air, but inevitably, the sickly moonlight draws my gaze skyward toward the waiting, chaotic void. The sky above me swirls with a million pale colors. Reds and blues and yellows and greens ripple through the space between the stars. The product of so much leisure. The product of countless people relaxing. I feel nauseous. The moon draws my eyes away from this horror show and the light pierces them. I feel my corneas peel back. I feel my retinas scorch. It is excruciating. I blame Mark. I curse his name. He took me away from my work, took me away from my machine, and now here I am. There's shambling color in the sky above and a maddening crawling along the inside of my skull. How am I meant to relax when faced with the horrible reality that I am by being here on this vacation, contributing to the growing threat in the sky above? How I wish to know what that threat is. How I wish to look upon the source of my madness, even if only briefly. I would spit in the face of whatever has done this to me. I have gone blind from the moonlight, but I now feel something take hold of my neck. My airway is cut off and I am lifted into the air. I cannot see. I cannot see. I am lifted further. The sounds of the forest around the cabin, owls, far-off coyotes, crickets fade below me. The air around me falls from cool to cold, and then I'm shivering from the plunging temperature. I don't know how long I'm lifted. I lose track of time. Something whispers in my ear suddenly, one word, the name I heard all those years ago in that alley, the name that sharpened my terror against stillness. The name plants a seed in my ear, and I feel the sprouts grow into my head. Vines crawl along the inside of my skull, wrapping my brain. Pressure builds behind my eyes. My spinal cord is seized tight. I gasp for breath against the force around my neck. Mark slaps my cheek several times and I wake up with my back against the cold wood of the porch. Are you alright? he asks. My eyes focus. I can see again. I look past Mark's face and see Nina's and then push him off and clamor to my feet. I struggle to get any words out initially, but then mumble that yes, I'm fine. I am more exhausted than I ever have been in my life, and nothing sounds better than getting some sleep. I shamble into the cabin and collapse onto my cot, falling immediately into a deep slumber. Suddenly I am surrounded by fire, yet it doesn't burn. Green flames arc and stretch before me. I brace myself for the pain, expecting my flesh to be seared from my bones within seconds, but that never comes. I collect myself, reevaluate my current situation. Am I dreaming? I watch the flames dance around me for several moments before realizing that I can control them. With just a thought, flames explode out in front of me, rising for miles and miles before dissipating into inky darkness. It is another several moments before the reality strikes me. 
I'm not controlling the flames. I am the flames. It hits me all at once. I am a raging ball of flame millions of miles across, nestled in some unknown corner of the universe. I explode outward, seething, extending flares in all directions. I feel it, the dead one, drifting behind me, in front of me, all around me, encompassing my solar essence. I shine my sickly green light across the universe, infecting those onto whose unfortunate faces I shine down. Then I am awake. It is not yet one o'clock. Nina and Mark are asleep in the nearby bed. I can hear them, yet I cannot see them. My eyes are no longer working. I have gone blind again, and I instinctively understand that this is not a temporary blindness. My body has changed too, though I can't quite put my fingers on how. That is, if I even have fingers anymore. My heart aches for my machine. I need to show Mark and Nina what it does. Lifting myself off my cot is difficult. My new form is incredibly heavy. Walking across the floor is more like dragging dead weight, though I find it doesn't tire me out. My energy now is endless. Nina is the first to wake. She screams and I quickly silence her. Though I can't see, I move effortlessly and somehow sense my surroundings. Mark is roused by Nina's screams and he too, upon looking at my majesty, shouts in terror. I strike him as well. My arms, if that's what they are, hoist each of their bodies up easily. I carry them outside to the car. I cannot feel the cold breeze that I hear rustling the leaves of the trees around us. The only thing I feel is the brilliant light from the countless stars in the sky. Their gentle and dreadful light warms me. I place Nina and Mark in the trunk of Mark's car and then squeeze myself into the driver's seat. It is easier than I assumed, given my bulk. We are back in the city and back at my small home by 4 a.m. I park in the alley to remain out of sight. When I open the trunk, I discover Mark has regained consciousness. He starts shouting again, and I fill his mouth with secretions from something that used to be my wrist. I'm careful to leave his nose unplugged. He will need to be alive for this. His constant gagging is a minor annoyance to me, and I hoist the two of them back up onto my shoulders. Nina's lifelessness concerns me for a moment, but I sense her breathing before too long. Mark struggles against my overwhelming strength for a few moments before giving up. I drag my form and my two prisoners across the backyard and into my house. The smell of oil and metal greets me and I smile. Or at least I think I smile. I am glad to be home. Glad to be close to my machine once more. I fetch some cord from a drawer in the kitchen and bind Mark and Nina. I feel Nina regaining consciousness, and I want neither of them to get away. I lumber around my house, running my new appendages across my old machine with new clarity. I prod switches I haven't touched in more than a decade, pull levers I can scarcely remember installing. I tighten bolts, reroute pipes, attach chains to gears in different rooms. It all seems clear to me now. My new sight 
since my eye's fortunate transformation has brought my life's work into sharp focus. I am the most fortunate person on the planet Earth. I have ascended and am about to make a journey so incredible no one but me alone would survive. The dead one finally made its will known to me, and to me alone. To think I resisted for so long. To think I thought the dead one evil. To think I was afraid. My machine, the catalyst for my journey, needs fuel. I have never fueled it before, but somehow I know how and where and what. Gasoline, and the car out back has a little left. I return past the kitchen on my way back to the car and can hear Nina and Mark struggling against their restraints. Mark murmurs against his full mouth and Nina begins shouting until I gag her as well. I drag my form on a slight detour for a length of hose and gas can from my shed. Reaching the car, I put the gas can on the pavement and feed the hose into the gas tank. I imagine it's still dark out here, but that doesn't matter to me any longer. I raise the hose to where I used to have a face, and I'm surprised to find I no longer have a mouth. I'm happy to discover some long, proboscis-like growth, though, which fits just into the gas tank. I sip on the gasoline, filling a sack deep in my guts. Returning to my machine, I fill its fuel tank with the gasoline from my belly. I have to move to the other side of the house to turn it on. Squeezing my way down a hallway that just moments prior I fit in comfortably, my senses are dampened as my extremities press against the wall. I nearly fall forward as I cram into the doorway to the back bedroom. Things are becoming much too tight. Something is going terribly wrong. I yank on the cable to start my machine, my life's work, and it roars to life. My house, my small house, all around me vibrates with a resonance that clouds my senses, and now I must squeeze back out of this room. My extrasensory vision goes dark as I attempt to stuff my ever-expanding calamity of a body through the doorway once again. As I do, I feel a sharp pain in my left side. I reposition myself, assuming I have broken off some of the door frame and managed to knife it into my body. I finally collapse through the doorway and the pain gets worse. My senses return to me. I realize I am lying on the ground, for lack of a better way to describe my current position. The pain in my left side is a knife that Nina is now withdrawing from my body and stabbing into my form yet again. She has somehow managed to untie herself. I try to resist, but my body has betrayed me. Too many limbs, too much mass. I can't figure out which parts of my body to move and when. I flail, and then I'm stabbed, and then stabbed again. I see my blood pouring from the wounds. It has turned gray like hash. Mark appears at the end of the hall. He is carrying a sledgehammer that he must have retrieved from my shed. He marches forward, towards me. I realize I will never see what my machine was meant to do. I wish I still had eyes. If I did, I would cry.
This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, Dreams of Dead Energy, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Anxiety and Insecurity. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out the other shows, they're great. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. (laughs) 